Hello, Radioland, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported Los Angeles Review of Books. Today on our show, the Bard of Hollywood is here. Author, screenwriter, and director Bruce Wagner is in the studio. He's got a new novel called I Met Someone, and it's not about Hollywood. It's about... I'm kidding. Of course it's about Hollywood. <laughs> well, they're not all about Hollywood. But not really. Not really. It's We'll get into the depth of, of the Wagnerian oeuvre. Laughter, tears, blood on the floor, the usual loving evisceration we've come to expect from this author. And we'll be talking to him about why show business is the gift that keeps on giving. Joining me are my usual co-hosts. She is the roving editor, the editrix without portfolio. She is the, the mistress of the LARB scene, Lori Weiner. That's me. How are you, Lori? I'm well, Seth. How are you? I'm okay. And with us, and by us I mean Lori and me, is our usual co-host. He's the founding editor of LARB, Tom Lutz. Hello, Tom. I'm trying to get ahead of the game, Seth. Let's do the show. Bruce Wagner is in the studio today. He's the author of many, many novels. His new one is called I Met Someone. Bruce, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. What's the number of novels an author has to have written before he's considered to have an oeuvre? Well, you know, you can have an, an oeuvre with with two books, you know what I mean? Okay, um, that's good. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, it's funny. People, um, friends say, you're so prolific, you're so prolific. And not sixty-two, ten books. You know, you if you write that one book, you know that that has uh, a, a tremendous impact. You know, Nathaniel West was not prolific, but certainly has an, an oeuvre. You know, Flaubert, not that many. That hack. <laughs> so you write these deeply humane books that are coincidentally all set in Hollywood. Mm. How aggravating is it to get lumped? into the Hollywood novelist category. Well, it's my burden to bear that the gravitas um, or the spiritual aspirations and uh, and ambition of my work, which is so focused on death and transcendence, is virtually invisible. All of my books receive the response from, I wouldn't say the lion's share of critics, but um, many critics that say he's ranting, he's name-dropping, everything else is submerged. So in, in TMZ culture, and Kardashian culture, there is a lot of obfuscation about what I do and uh, a lot of um, mistranslation. But because of my, my near fetish for using uh, Hollywood as my proscenium, in essence, uh, share some of the blame for that. It is uh, my muse in, in a sense. I'm from here, which is unlike um, many people that try their hand at the Hollywood novel. So it's in my blood. It's in my DNA. Um, br using brand names to to cue your readers into what you mean as a shorthand. Like, for instance, the playwright Wendy Wasserstein, I don't know. Mm. Yeah. And I just remember that her, in her later works, like she, she started to, there was a tipping point and she started to do it too much. And it seemed like, mm. uh, you know, the shorthand was becoming obnoxious. And it seems like a, a, mm. a hard balance to, yeah. to hit. How much of that, you know, has to do with how you're placed? You know, 
uh, David Cronenberg, who directed Maps of the Stars, a movie that I wrote uh, last year, um, said that my work freed him as a first-time novelist to limb the contemporary, in other words, uh, in, a, in a very hardcore way. Uh, whereas others will say, uh, less discerning, I believe, than, than David, that that immediately dates or, or puts shackles on your work, you know. I think that contributes to the misunderstanding that uh, is afoot with a, a lot of people when they read your work. Because as I was reading the new novel, uh, I met someone marveling at the use of brand names because I think you use them very much the way Rauschenberg uses found objects in his art. And it makes it, for somebody who's reading the work on a, on a superficial level, they're seeing the brand names and they're not seeing them transmogrified into, into literature, which mm. is really the, the trick of your writing. And I use the word trick in quotes. Well, but. I'll take that comparison to Rauschenberg any day. I mean, for me, what you know, I was, when I was writing Dead Stars a few years ago, mm -hmm. I was completely immersed in rap culture because one of my characters was a white speed freak who had this obsession with Eminem uh, being uh, the plantation owner. The, one of the things that I adore about rap is the use of language. And whatever they say about Kanye, to hear these rappers uh, using Margiela in rhymes and very subtle, often, and complex throwaways that simply was part of the tapestry of the zeitgeist was enthralling to me and still is. That's what I, I adore about rap is, is the, the incessant wordplay. I do that in certain sections of my novels, certain books that, that are not Hollywood-centric, such as The Empty Chair or Memorial. We'll do less of that. But even those books are uh, painted with the brush of, um, of name-dropping when, when it, it, it's such a, a negligible component of, of what I'm doing. You know, it's a color that I use. When I was reading... Uh the beginning of your new novel and there's this great scene where the movie star is being interviewed by a, a guy who is renowned for his braininess. The Charlie Rose kind of figure. Charlie Rose yeah. kind of guy. Yeah. And, and, and it was... You know, so interesting because it was a kabuki, kind of kabuki Hollywood thing where he has to say only the most admiring... Um, yeah sentiments to her and it's part of the stance that you know one does and I I did a lot of celebrity interviews in my time and I recognized it yeah. but I also could was seeing it as a metaphor for how we all you know have conversations and we're trying to get something from someone mm. else and we have to play that role in that conversation yeah you know I mean part of our daily discourse uh, I won't say intercourse is crawling up someone's ass, you know, and, and uh, Charlie Rose is, you know, he's a kabuki actor who crawls up and lives in mm -hmm. people's asses, you know. But uh, that's part of commerce, and, and uh, there's a fine line between uh, a respectful colloquy and uh and sycophancy you know what i mean yeah um but but how, how are we doing are we being sycophantic not nearly enough not nearly enough not yet okay. i want you living there you are such a genius <laughs> 
This is Seth Greenland. I'm here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, 90.7 KPFK-FM, coming to you from the aesthetically perfect studios at Emerson College. We are talking to Bruce Wagner. And before we go back to that interview, this. Norman Klein, one half of the creative team behind the remarkable project, The Imaginary 20th Century, was in here recently to talk about that book, and he has come back to recommend another book to uh, listeners of the LARB Radio Hour. Norman, welcome back. Oh, I'm back, and yet I wasn't here. Exactly, exactly. It's magic. Here. It's here, magic. It's, here you are. Time, it's a time-space problem, but well, I can handle it. What's the book? The book had a deep influence on me for many years. It's called The Waning of the Middle Ages. That's the title. The author's name is Johann with a J, Heusinger, H. U I Z and Google will find the rest. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the 21st century. And and uh, and and why what's what's important about this book? Well, first of all, it's a book about the Renaissance with a very strange picaresque element to it and it's influenced by a kind of microhistory in the late 15th century the Duke of Burgundy failed to produce an heir. There were many other failures about his nature, but his not producing an heir was particularly distressing because that would mean that that the Habsburgs, who were in Holland as well, and the and the Bourbons in, in France were going to swallow up Burgundy. So Burgundy began the process of watching itself disappear as the old man got older, and they began to set up strange festivals, and the festivals got more and more eccentric, more and more prurient and almost uh, sexually weird, uh, especially the religious festivals. And his argument is that in the waning of the Middle Ages, one actually locates the Renaissance. And I thought, that's my neighborhood. That's Brooklyn. That's where I'm from. <laughs> I, I felt like I was living in medieval Brooklyn all along. So, so somehow that book has always stuck with me, and that's the rule. Everything happens almost by accident, and you're always looking at the wrong hole while the actual problem is, is upon you. And I, I find it an, an amazing journey and very appropriate. We're, we're sliding into something, aren't we? The waning is a sliding. Nothing crashes, it wanes. The waning is actually an emergence. It's, it's a fantastic premise to work from for mm. artists and scholars. He also wrote uh, Homo Ludens, right? Oh, right like, like that's, Homo... the other, that's, that's the other twin of right? incredible importance to me. And tell, tell people what, what that book is about. The, Homo Ludens is about collective play. It's a book about how people collectively play, but it's not just how they experience a, a baseball game or a football game. It's the whole collective action and the escapism and the erasures of memory and meaning and the kind of paramnesia of play. It's an amazing journey. And once mm. you understand that, you, and if you're a games designer, if you're a games player, if you're dealing with the perversity of American politics today, Homo Ludens really tells you a lot of what advanced consumerism has become. So if I take these two together, mm. um, I, I have pretty much a pretty good kit to start with, with almost everything I do. So I'll recommend those. Norman Klein, bring him back, Johann Huizinga. <laughs> Huizinga. Huizinga. But Huizinga is good. He would have liked it. <laughs> Thanks for Boyful. coming back to uh, the LARB Radio Hour, Norman. You bet.
You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, KPFK 90.7 FM. We are talking to Bruce Wagner. I have a, I have a, a question that's come out of a couple, you know, there's a, a movement in literary criticism, academic literary criticism these days to talk about affect, to talk about emotion. And so we've had a couple of pieces lately about disgust. And one of the things that I've always noticed in, in your work is a kind of a joy mm. uh, that you have yeah. that, that I that I see the author having. And you kind of, you love disgust. Is that fair well, to say? Well, um, I would say that shame um, is the thing that I'm I'm really uh, having my long love affair with. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about that. It's, a, it's so it's such an interesting you know, shame, shame, and failure, which for me are I think they've been ways that I inoculated myself. Everything that I do in terms of my work for me personally is a preparation for death. You know, so as the Buddhists had these uh, graveyard meditations where bones were meditated over and um, cadavers, mm-hmm. um, I do that in a sense in the landscape of my work: human folly and shame and failure. Um, in this last book, I saw a homeless woman, and I, I, I put her in the book. She was holding a sign that said, "I failed. Now what?" A woman, 53-year-old homeless woman. And I have renewed myself through failure. You know, I I was a a hack screenwriter in Hollywood uh, who was losing his mind. So I had read the Pat Hobby stories of Fitzgerald, written tellingly while Fitzgerald was in his last um, months. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, how can I take this further than was possible for him to do at that time. Were they the inspiration for Force Majeure? Definitely. The Definitely. They're, they're the text, I think, of yeah. every screenwriter who has yeah. ever turned to fiction. So I thought, how could I have things happen to my pseudonymous <laughs> creation <laughs> that were beyond the pale? Which, of course, that entire book ends in madness and, and pedophilia, you know. Mm-hmm. So, But what doesn't? Let me just push on that a little bit, because I think that, for instance, in Dead Stars, the uh, youngest cancer survivor girl, she is gets more and more horrible. And the aspects of her, which are about shameful behavior, Mm -hmm. kind of move past shame into something that I think brings on a certain kind of disgust in the readers like, Oh my God! There, there's something deeply real about being that grotesquely amoral. Mm-hmm. Her shame; she's shameless, yeah. which is part of why yeah. she's a fun character. Yeah, right. Yeah. At the at the end of that, though, she enters a kind of transcendence yeah. where she she becomes a full grown benevolent presence. So it, it, you have to upend things like that. With with I met someone. This novel, on its face, is uh, a lifetime movie. It's it's <laughs> yes. a it's a a, a gay uh, woman who is a, a famous and beloved film star, and has a, a secret that she has kept from the public, and something that has dogged her and haunted her that she gave up her baby, uh, a little girl, when she was sixteen. But worse than that is that she never went to look for the child, and she's now in her early 50s. So on its face, I met someone is a, a mother looking for the, the little girl she gave up. It's Edith and, Wharton. 
it's Edith Wharton <laughs> and with a touch of Rauschenberg. <laughs> and what happens then is is something for me that's it's out of Greek tragedy or the Marquis de Sade. And then takes another turn, which is what we were talking about a few moments ago, into something that I regard the last 30 or 40 pages of that book as transcendence and pure love. Which is finally your subject, kind of the undying human desire for transcendence. You know, I was possessed, and and I write about it in I Met Someone with with sudden death, you know, because mm-hmm. in this HuffPost TED Talk world, um, we are convinced that our lives will have three acts. And, uh, you know, I, I, I mentioned in the book, there's, uh, I saw a YouTube uh, video of a, a barrister in England who was terminal, and he decided to hire his grandson to make a film about him. So they're strolling uh, in the graveyard where the man will be buried, and then they're sitting in uh, the, the the library of a, a well-appointed house with a roaring fire, and it's very elegiac and uh, and tidy. And uh, again, that's not to disparage this man's effort or his way of dying, which was magnificent in its own way. But it is not going to be an option afforded to most of us. There will be that drunk that takes us out or paralyzes us. There will be a wasting muscular disease. There will be a sudden heart attack. Gary Shandling, uh, who was a friend of mine uh, a few weeks ago, you know. Um, it, it, so for me, yes, it, it's how do I prepare for my own death, you know. Um, and, and I'll tell you one of the very simple ways is through the joyousness that's provided me when things are going well in the work, just share the work. Just like someone who makes a cabinet or someone who um, lays uh, marble or terrazzo, whatever one does, you know. Do you think over your career, and you've been writing fiction for about 25 years now, is that right? Has the empathy you have for your characters, could you talk about how that's evolved since you began writing fiction to where you are now? You know, I think that nothing as much has changed, that I am every character that I write about, whether that character is queer or that character is a murderer or that character is a woman. Or is Bud Wiggins. Or is Bud Wiggins, you know, <laughs> he's the, the station master. Whether that character is a child, whether that character is amoral or strictly moral, I aspire to be all of those characters. Um, and, and that's how I think one arrives at uh, a voice for each character that has some authenticity. So in terms of my own personal evolution, I think the... The circle, in terms of what I do, is is not widening. You know, it is narrowing, uh, which makes it um, feel more of a solitary journey. You know, when I had success earlier in my career with "I'm Losing You," I had no understanding of what that meant—that people would suddenly read you on the page. I mean, it was a fantasy of mine. You know, when I was 13, I was stealing hundreds of books and and imagining having a book on the shelf, you know. Uh, and then as my career has, has gone on and as um, I've gotten deeper into my work, I feel that I am 
approaching death as my not not literally uh, well I should say literally of course <laughs> but I meant that that as as my my readership narrows it it feels to me that my sense of the magnificent is widening and and my my confidence and um, the 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 evolution of what I do is 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 expanding, you know. Yeah. Quick quick uh, side note, uh, where did you steal your books? Oh my god. I'm I'm just I'm asking because uh, ever since Bert uh, Dykesler and and Daryl Holter took over Chevaliers, uh, one of the things they've been surprised at is how many writers have come in and said this is where I used to steal my books. Matt oh, we- Matt Weiner. No, no, no. I mean uh, I'm, James I'm, Elroy. I'm an old guy. So yeah. I I worked at Martindale's in Beverly Hills and Hunters in Beverly Hills. I stole from there. Mm-hmm. Martindale's in Century City. There was a store called Papa Bach in Westwood. Um, I mean, I just, it was everywhere on Wilshire Boulevard. I mean, um, Balzac's paperbacks on Wilshire. And, uh, you know, I was an inveterate uh, book theft. And uh, I won't say that I, I am now. No, of for, course. For legal reasons, not. of course. No, but I, I have, you know, I have a collection of about 6,000 books at home. And, wow. and many of them are books that I buy over and over again, you know, from when I was a boy. My crush is Janae, you know. And and Quixote, I must have thirty copies in Dickens and Henry James. I remember. I'm so thrilled that Library of America is publishing um, Henry James the way they're doing because this was not that long ago where I I could not find the collected short stories of Henry James. Yeah, ten, twelve, fifteen years ago, and I remember going to Heritage and getting the New York edition, and and now they're all they're, they're all, all there, there, you know. So yeah, yeah. it's thrilling. And um. Speaking of um, books that were important to me as a youth, one of them is, uh, is one of the authors was Carlos Castaneda, mm-hmm. and he was a friend of yours. A, a, yeah. you are his literary executor. Well, I wouldn't call him a friend. Okay. You know, they, they, there's a phrase for um, and Carlos Castaneda was not a guru to me, but there is a, a, a phrase called "dangerous friends." It was a, a book written about um, mentors and gurus. Castaneda was uh, astonishing and and brilliant and hilarious, and I was privileged to know him for 10 years, to uh, listen to him and and to um, work with him in a sense. And I learned wonders from him, traveled in Mexico with him, and I remember the first time I met him, uh, he had some hilarious stories about Hollywood. I mean hilarious, because Hollywood endlessly wanted to adapt his work. I think Sterling Stilifant um, uh. wanted to and knew Castaneda. Fellini came from Italy to visit Castaneda. And uh, so he tells stories about Jack Warner, you know what I mean, that are just, uh. they had me on the floor. They were like Bud Wiggins stories. And I thought, can this be an hallucination that I finally have met Carlos Castaneda and he's telling me Bud Wiggins stories, you know. But he was, um, he was, uh, I, I mean... Very, very important person in my life, and still is in many ways. I, I feel his presence. Yeah. You, you've obviously done a pretty deep dive into into Castaneda, into Eastern philosophy. Do you have a, a specific spiritual practice that you're comfortable talking about? I don't. You know, I don't. I went to India some years ago to see Ramesh Balsekar, um, who many people have visited, Leonard Cohen, and and he said something that I thought was so telling. He 
people ask the same questions. They call it satsang, and they, he, he died a few years ago. It's the same questions essentially over and over again. Um, how do I stop suffering? Uh, how do I become enlightened or liberated? He felt that everything was predetermined. You could not um, become uh, enlightened as if you were here at Emerson or taking a degree in something. You, you, you couldn't. It was random and it was predestined. But he said his definition of enlightenment, and this made a very deep impression on me because of its simplicity, was that if you could live in the moment and if a terrible thing happened to you, you did not suffer because you didn't take it personally. And if an extraordinary and wonderful thing happened to you, you didn't take that personally either. So, in other words, you felt a sense of joyousness and peacefulness and well-being in the moment. And then there's a a quote that he used um, from the Buddha, which is, things happen, deeds are done, but there is no individual doer of the deed. So this construction of Bruce Wagner, Hollywood novelist, satirist, shame, you know, high selling, low selling, all this shit is nothing but that. So if one can elegantly step outside of the prison for a moment before the actual uh, extinction, that that's lovely. And stepping outside means sitting, uh, you know, they could be as you walk out of 7-Eleven with a Diet Coke, just for a moment, you know, Castaneda talked about that. It's the accretion, the accumulation of moments with, that Castaneda called silence. So uh, silence is that sense of well-being that where the self is is uh, obliterated, you know, and, and, and it happens to all of us. We just don't recognize it. And to, to put together a string of those moments is the trick. Or not, you know, what difference does it make? They're yeah. hard to manage. I mean, they kind of, I mean, it feels like they just happen to you. I mean, how much can you manage them? Yeah. 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 You know, you know I, I feel as I get older, um, I'm... I've gotten much better at the second half of that equation. That is, the stuff, the good stuff that happens, I don't take it personally. The bad stuff that happens, I don't take it personally. I'm very much better at that than I was as a younger man. Being here now, I was much better at being there then mm-hmm. uh, than, than I am yeah. about being here now. I, I find that um, but my ability to be in the moment um, has been degrading for the last 40 years rather than getting getting better. You can't control any of it anyway, you know, so there's, I try not to um, be too cerebral about it and um, just, to, I, I, I attempt to enjoy the hours of my day and I fail abysmally, you know, often, but then the trick is uh, to get up uh, once you stumble and you, you know, you're going to stumble hundreds of times a day, you know, you're going to be on your ass, even if someone else is living in it. <laughs> <laughs> with, with any luck. <laughs> and that's a perfect place to end. The book is I Met Someone. Bruce Wagner, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. It's delightful. Thanks to Norman Klein and Bruce Wagner. Thanks to our producer and moral conscience, Jerry Gorin. Our crack production assistant, Ernesto Orellano. Czar of Scheduling, Aviva de Kornfeld. Find us on the web at www.lareviewofbooks.org. Download us on iTunes or wherever podcasts are available. Follow us on Twitter. Lori, are you on Twitter? Yes, and people should follow me. What is your Twitter handle? <laughs> I totally agree, by the way. People should follow Lori. Wait, what, yeah, what's yeah. that handle? It's at Lori Weiner. And He's people in- should follow you, Seth. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, and Tom as well. They should do all of those things. For Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner, this is Seth Greenland. Thanks for listening. <laughs>